different turn today and talk about God in us. I want to look at us as a church today. I know, I know everything that has to do with one has to do with all of us. No man lives to himself, the scripture says. No man dies to himself. Um, it makes a difference. I know the church is not popular in culture today, but it's very popular in the plan of God. And God has been doing some wonderful things. We thank God for every sign of revival that is coming up in every place that it uh, is, is appearing. And, um, but let's think for a few moments today, not about God in me, that's part of it, but God in us. And I want to ask the question, what does a great church look like? Now, so we would be tempted to say size, we would be tempted to say decor or building, um, but I want to tell you some of the holiest moments I've ever seen have been in storefronts and warehouses. And it's just not the way the natural eye would see greatness. Remember, we are part of an upside down kingdom where the first is last and the last is first. And God said that which is esteemed in the eyes of man is not necessarily, could be, but is not necessarily esteemed by God. He illustrated it by talking to the Corinthian church. He said, look at yourself. He said, God has taken the weak things of the world to confound the strong things of the world. He said, not many of you are mighty. Not many of you are strong. Not many of you are what the world would call well-educated. He says, but God has chosen, there's nothing wrong with being well-educated or mighty or strong, uh, but you are not in the majority. You're not in the majority. You're in the minority. God um, is able to take the weakest of the weak um, and do something that the strongest of the strong could never do. I had a friend that, um, well, actually it was a friend of my dad, and uh, I knew him all my life growing up, and he was telling me about his conversion one time. And um, it... Uh, it was very similar to a story that uh, had happened to someone else I've told you about, but he had taken great pride. He'd been raised in the little assembly of God church in the community, never given his life to the Lord. He survived youth camp without getting saved, VBS without getting saved, revivals without getting saved. And he had kind of taken a pride in it, married the prettiest girl in the church. And uh, they had you know, they'd loved each other, but she had been the focus or he had been the focus of her prayers for years because uh, he just was not ready to meet God. And he had prided himself on having an excuse. You know, I, he was able to keep pastors at bay. He had been able through the years to keep evangelists at bay. Um, he kind of took pride. He didn't tell anybody this till, till later. But he said, I took pride. He said, it didn't matter if they had doctor in front of their name or it just didn't matter. I was always able to put everybody that wanted to lead me to the Lord in their place. And I knew when I got saved, I'd do it my own time, my own way. And that's a dangerous attitude to take because you don't just come to the Lord anytime you want to. You have to be drawn by the Spirit. And um, he he. He was taking great pride in that. His wife would later say that she was afraid he was in danger of, of fulfilling that proverb that says the person that stiffens their neck 
um, and, and, and will not yield, they will be destroyed quickly and that without remedy, the King James says. And there was a revival going on and God was doing some incredible things in the youth and the children. It was a little church, maybe, maybe 100, 120 people. And a little boy that had been particularly touched by God, a little elementary kid, went back to him uh, during the altar call as he sat back there, as was his custom. And um, he said, Brother Moore, he wasn't even saved, but they still called him Brother Moore. He said, Brother Moore, you need to come to Jesus today and get saved. And my friend thought, oh, this is so cute, a little boy, little elementary school. He does not know how many I have masterfully handled. And here he is, elementary school, telling me I need to come to Jesus. And with, with kindness, he looked at the little boy and said, he said, son, I just don't think it's time. And I'll come to God when it's the right time, but I don't think this is it's the right time now. And this was a little boy. I told you this story before. I just didn't go into much detail, but he looked at him and said, all right, then you go to hell and fry like sausage. <laughs> and the little boy wasn't being disrespectful. That was just what was on his heart. You go to hell and fry like sausage. And um, <clears throat> that night, the man couldn't get to sleep. When he got to sleep, he kept waking up, hearing that little boy, you go to hell and fry like sausage. He woke up the next morning to his wife cooking breakfast. And what was she cooking? <laughs> yes. And uh, he came in there and she said, honey, your breakfast is ready. He said, I don't want any breakfast. I want to call the preacher. I want to get saved. And, uh, and he did. And he's in heaven today. But God's able to use the weakest of the weak to conquer the strongest of the strong. Um, what we think is great, God may not think is great. Um, during the time of the religious wars in England, when, which was just such a vicious failure in many ways of Christianity, where um, the church was at odds with itself. And um, one revivalist was taken on a tour of a majestic cathedral, and he saw the artwork, he saw the, the, the decorations of the church, the statues, the tapestries. And as he was shown this church, the the pastor of the church said, well, as you can see, the church no longer has to say silver and gold, have we none. And the revivalists looked about and said, that's true, but neither can you say, but such as I have, give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. So that church was considered great, but it had lost its power. Book of Revelation talks about a church that had a name that it was living, but in actuality, it was dead. Um, I think of F.B. Meyer, one of my favorite writers when I was a young preacher, uh, a prolific writer, great preacher, uh, long gone to heaven now. But um, he said this, he said, as I entered the ministry, a fairly young Christian, he said, I was convinced that the great things of God and the great gifts of God were like one shelf upon another. And the taller you grew in God, the stronger you grew in God, the more you were able to reach those high and lofty gifts. 
And he said, so I set myself to grow so I could reach the great gifts. He said, what I found out to my surprise is that the true treasures of God were not stacked one upon another. He said, the true treasures of God were stacked one under another. And he said, I found out that if I was serious about being a great man of God, he said, I may not be a great man of God. He was, he was known around the world. But he said, if I was going to be serious about being a great man of God, it wasn't a matter of how high I could reach. It was a matter of how low I could kneel. It was a matter of how low I could go. And God taught him the secret of true greatness. So I want to talk today about, uh, um, and, and, and first of all, I want to say, I believe this is a great church. I really do. That's not just propaganda. I, I I've told you for 29 years, almost 29 years, I didn't say it right away, but it, it wasn't long after I came here. I said, I, I believe this is the greatest church in America. You're the greatest congregation on planet earth. I still believe that. I told you for years that I lived in fear of assassination from other pastors that would want this church that they would kill me in order to get the church. You know, I, I, I still feel that way. I am not lucky as the world sees lucky, but I am the most providentially blessed person on planet earth to be the pastor of this church. I, I do feel that way. We've had common goals from our 12 prayer points to our, our core values, to our philosophy, to the, to the ethos we wanted to compare. I was looking at pictures from right, uh, 30 years and older, uh, looking at pictures of the church. God has blessed us. Our buildings have changed. Our footprint has changed. We own property that we didn't own before. And in fact, we've doubled our property. God has been so gracious, but loved ones, none of those things, as I looked at those pictures, none of those things are the reasons I think we are a great church. I think it's because of what God has done in our heart. And this isn't a sermon to celebrate our greatness. This is a sermon that I want to define greatness. You say, well, who are you to define greatness? Well, I'm going to go to nine scriptures in the book of Acts that tell us what God considered great in the early church. So I'm just relating the fact. Now, um, uh, that, that's revealed in scripture. And this is what I want you to do. I'm going to run through those nine points and then I want to kind of translate them, make a little application. And, and so that, you know, this is what these nine points produce. We're just going to run through those and, and, and translate it. And then I'm going to ask you to do something. I, I don't know that I've ever asked you to do something quite like this. This includes our, our live stream audience. I want you to be listening during this sermon. And what I've asked God to do is touch your heart. I mean, really connect with your heart. I hope you'll agree with all of them, but I'm not just looking for agreement. I'm looking for God to touch your heart with at least one of these things. And you'll say, Lord, you have touched my heart to pray that Christian life will have great faith or that Christian life will have great miracles, or that Christian life will have great numbers. And I'm going to ask you to write the one that God touches your heart with. 
And I'm going to ask you to commit to praying for that. I'm going to ask you to pray at least every time the Holy Spirit brings it to your heart. I'm hoping you'll pray daily. I'm going to ask you to get an index card or a piece of paper or something. Set an alarm on your clock. And I'm going to ask you to pray from now to the end of the year, 92 days. That's not long. Christmas is here. Did you know that? I mean, it's almost Christmas time. And um, I'm going to ask you to just come together with me. Even if you pray two minutes a day, you say, oh, two minutes a day, that's nothing. Well, it is if 2,000 people are doing it. And if we could just commit. Now, some of you are going to say, well, I can't decide. There's three that are really important to me. That's great. That's great. Some of you are going to be praying the whole list. That's okay too. But if everybody could at least take one thing, and that's going to be the altar call today. Now we're going to pray for those that want to come to Jesus. We're going to pray for those who have needs, absolutely. But where we're trying to get today is another prayer campaign. You say, well, we just finished two. You had us praying and then Justin had us praying. How much praying does it take? All we can do, all we can do. No, it's not prayers of works. None of those things have been prayers of works, but it's prayer that works. It's prayer that works. So we're asking God to, and this has got to be the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to send you a note. Have have you been praying for this, that, or the other? You're not asked to sign up. This is a work of the sovereign Lord to touch your life. I'm asking God to say, Angela, this is what I want you to pray about. And Angela can put it on her phone. She can put it on her refrigerator or bathroom mirror, wherever. It doesn't matter. How you do it doesn't matter. But we are going to say to the Lord for the next 92 days, uh, as often as you can, we're going to bring this need to you because I believe the prayers we pray over the next three months will shadow and shape and color and influence 2024 in our church. And that's what we're after. Father, I'm asking now that of all that you're going to do today, whatever that may be in individual lives, I'm praying that you will help us to begin to flavor the next year, begin to flavor 2024. Not not that you have to wait till then, But Lord, we are going to bring these needs to you because some things happen when we pray that don't happen if we don't pray. So we're going to pray. And we ask you to help us understand now what a great church looks like. Okay, now true greatness is not about being large, but rather it's about influence, about discipling. It's about fulfilling the purposes of God in our generation. We can't say we're going to do what a church 300 years ago did. That's their generation. That was their calling. But this is ours. Uh, In the New Testament, in the book of Acts, it says that David, I I love this phrase, it is so loaded, that after he served the purposes of God in his generation, David was not responsible for the past. David was not responsible for the future. David was not responsible for other nations. But in his role as a king of Israel, he was assigned a task. And that was what God wanted him to focus on. He had other things he wanted to do, like building the temple. But that was the purpose of God in Solomon's generation. 
not in David's. So what we want to do is understand that God has something for us to do in our generation. Uh, you say, well, I'm so old, I'm ready for retirement. I guess I missed my opportunity. Uh, yeah, every time I try something like that, God reminds me of Moses, who didn't even get started uh, seriously till he was 80. You say, well, but not everybody was like that. That's right. There were youngsters like Abraham that started his journey when he was 70. So yeah, there, there's, there's young people in it too, you know, whether you're 70 or 80 or boy, what does the Psalm say? I say this to our young people, blessed are those who seek me early. And we're not sure from the context if that means early in the morning or early in life but I'll take them both. The earlier we begin to seek God, the more potential we have. But understand this, it's never too late. And remember this, because it's never too late, because it's not about quantity necessarily. Jesus said the greatest leading saint of the Old Testament uh, era was a man named John the baptizer who only had a ministry for about 18 months. And Jesus said he is the greatest influencer, even though he had a ministry this long. We still see people responding to missions all around the world because of the testimony of Jim Elliott, who died in his first assignment, killed uh, by, at the hand of those he was trying to minister to, uh, a ministry that lasted just a very short time. But God says, I can take something so frail and so limited and so weak that I can make something that the world would never call great, great. Um, there's a day of reward and regret when the Lord himself will give his assessment not only of every person, but of every church. The Bible says that pastors, I won't give just an account for my life, but I will give an account for you. I will give an account of this church as the leader of the church. And that's a very sobering thing. So it's not just our spiritual health as individuals or even as a family. It's about what we are in the church. Um, now let's look in the book of Acts at nine characteristics identified as great, either because of quantity or quality, or maybe both. Quantity, quality, or maybe both. Now let the Spirit highlight one of these at least in your heart today. Uh, we're just going to run through them. I've, every one of them could be their own message. But number one, there was great power. The early church had great power. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Now, it's interesting that the writer puts links great power with great grace because great power, we, we are not Holy Ghost Jedis. We are not Jesus Jedis who are trying to master the force. Nobody should leave church and say, oh, the force is strong with this one. No, 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 no. It's not us. It's the, the power that we have comes to us only by grace. But one of the first things we observe about the early church is that there was great power. And power doesn't just mean miracles. 
It can mean miracles, but it, it talks about influence. It you know, America for at, at least, at least uh, 90 to 110 years, the church, not even counting the colonial times, the church served and had great power as the conscience of the nation. The conscience of the nation. Now, it's never been a time when everybody in, in America was a Christian. I don't know that there's ever been a time, unless maybe it was after the, the first great awakening, which was before we even became a country, that the majority of people went to church. Maybe there was a short period of time where the majority of people went to church. We know when we became a nation that it was upwards of 50% that were churchgoers and church members. Now it's something around 12%, I think. So it's changed a little bit. Um, and that number has been in steady decline for the last few years, by the way. Um, it may be in single digits by the time we get the next uh, statistic. But the thing about the church, even if a person wasn't a Christian, the church had great power. And what the church felt, what the church said what the church stood for shaped by and large American culture. It's not like that anymore. And we've got to understand that one of our goals is to come back to the place that we are a church with great power. I remember speaking with someone when I was a student, I was just a student and they were, we were arguing about something, whether it was right or wrong. And I said, I just believe it's wrong. And he said, well, I don't think it's wrong at all. He said, why do you think it's wrong? And I quoted a Bible verse to him. And this guy that didn't go to church, had no regard. He said, that's in the Bible. And I said, yes, it's in the Bible. And he said, well, and I'm wrong. If that's in the Bible, it's right. I guess I'm wrong about that. That, that was the culture that I grew up in. You say, but yeah, pastor, but you're in your thirties and you, you know, you've been alive a long time. Yes. Yes, I, I have. I've been alive a long time. And I want to tell you, I know every generation says this, but not every generation is real or is right. But the culture of America has changed over the last generation or two. It's been, and it goes back further than that. But if we want to have great power, we have to have great grace because we are not going to generate power. You find somebody with a spiritual gift that is not flowing out of grace, they're an accident waiting to happen. They are dangerous. They will do more harm than good uh, by the time everything's said and done. I read a book written by someone a few years ago. Well, it was written before I came here. Uh, it's, it's, it's got some age on it now, but it was the history of great healers in the Pentecostal movement. And I read it and there was even a volume two later and it was talking about great men and women of God that had phenomenal healing ministries. And it was a good story, but by the time I finished it, I was so depressed. And you say, why were you depressed? Well, first of all, I had a hunger because I'd, I'd never seen that kind of manifestation consistently. So it created a hunger in me, but it also created a depression because I think without fail, every one of them went off the deep end before they died. Every one of them, I don't mean necessarily mortal sin, but they, they made tragic mistakes and some of them left behind more damage than they did good. And there's a danger of just seeking power for the sake of power. I heard Benny Hinn say this. I heard this 
where he said, I, God set me to the side for a while because he said, I did this one time and a whole section of people fell out under the power. And he said, I use that for a gimmick. Why God honored it, I don't know. But he said, I got to doing that just to see people fall and to make them impressed with me. And God spoke to me and said, this is not going to continue. And you can, and, and I believe he repented, but you can be sucked into a power trip. You can, be, you can become a groupie. You can make your church feel so depressed because of the way you say you're not enough. You're not enough. You're not enough. And you've got to understand that great power has to flow out of great grace. But they were not only people of great power, they were people of great boldness. Now, Lord, consider their threats. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This was after the disciples had been arrested for performing a miracle. And they were told that they strictly were not allowed to teach or preach anymore in the name of Jesus. They were, or they were going to pay the consequences and they were threatened and they went to a prayer meeting and they reminded God of who he was. They reminded God of what he had said. They reminded God of what he had done and they ended their way, their prayer this way. Lord, now listen to what they're saying. We're remembering what you're saying, but enable us to serve and to speak with great boldness. With great boldness, stretch out your hand. I, I don't want to bog us down, but I just remember when I was in high school and we were right on the cusp of the Jesus movement, Jesus people, back in the late 60s, early 70s. And um, the year, if I'm remembering it correctly, was 69 or 70. I was in uh, the science class. I think it was biology. Uh, yeah, probably would have been 10th grade biology. And I was in there and we had a teacher that was not, when I say she was an evil person, I don't mean she did evil things necessarily, but I say she was evil because she did, she just, she wasn't just a non-believer. She would persecute belief. She would tell us not to mention God in class. She said, if you mention God, when we start talking about uh, the beginning of all things and I will see to it that you fail this class and will do everything I can to see that you fail this grade and was very hostile and we were aware of that and one day we came into class and she said how many of you believe this theory it was about creation how many of you believe this theory uh, about creation and she said how many of you believe God created the earth and a handful of us probably a pretty good number of us raised our hand. And she said, I've told you that, I mean, she asked the question. She said, I told you that this is not acceptable. Da, 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 da. And she went on just through it. And then she just humiliated everybody. And one guy that was a Christian, I knew him. I didn't think he was a good Christian. I mean, how could you have a good Christian with long hair? How could you have good, uh, be a good Christian, you know, to wear your shirt open? I like that. He was, he was a hunk and he was a jock and I wasn't. So, um, 
That's why I thought he was unspiritual. <laughs> and he, he raised his hand. And he said, but Miss da da da. And he, he said, why do you have the right to say there is no God, but I don't have the right to say there is a God. And they got into it and she eviscerated him. She humiliated him. I, I mean, it was awful. It was, it was a bloody emotional affair. And, and uh, she basically said, at, after she had just eviscerated him and threatened him with failure, she said, any of you other Christians like to join in? And none of us raised our hand. None of us raised our hand. And I will go to my grave regretting that I didn't stand up for the Lord and I didn't stand up for my brother. But I was learning something that day that we are going to have to learn again. One of the religious leaders of Israel, when Jesus was persecuted, he made fun of Jesus. He said he saved others, but he can't save himself. He meant that to be a mockery, but you know, I realized that day there, is few, there are few things more true than that. If you're going to be used of God to save others, you can't save yourself. You have to be willing to speak with boldness. And um, uh, this friend of mine, after that, nothing happened for weeks, but it was just a matter of weeks, maybe a few months before the Jesus movement and uh, reached our community and people were getting saved left and right. Um, we were meeting outside at the flagpole and it was a good time. I got to witness, I got to, to, to lead a, a handful of my friends to the Lord, but there was a group that met that couldn't even be accommodated in any of the classrooms. And so many people were getting saved. And I tell you what happened, when people began to hear about the life-changing power of Jesus, they remembered what they saw in that science classroom. They remembered what they heard about this young man being eviscerated by this teacher. And he was willing to speak with boldness and thought he lost, but it opened a flow of people to him. And I would say, I think I'm safe to say, hundreds of students came to Jesus and were baptized because somebody said, Lord, give us the ability, even though we're threatened, give us the ability to speak with boldness. Loved ones, we're going to have to teach our children to be bold again, not stupid. There's a difference between being stupid and being bold. I was watching a TV thing the other day and somebody just slapped a policeman and I thought, ooh, and the policeman looked at him and, and said, well, now that was stupid. <laughs> yeah, there's a difference between being bold and being stupid. We don't need to teach our children to be stupid, but we need to teach our children to be, to be bold. We need to be bold. We are in a culture right now that is trying to snuff out anything that disagrees with them. On any point, you can name a half dozen things. Right now, we have already been mocked as Christians. Now we're, we're being marginalized as Christians. And the day is coming, we're going to be persecuted as Christians if we don't understand that we've got to live out greatness 
the way the early church lived out greatness. Here's number three, not only great power and great boldness, but great miracles. Now it says, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. And his buddy, they, they were among what we would call probably the first uh, deacons. They, they didn't have a church position. They didn't have church authority, but they were servants. Stephen and Philip both were not laity, I mean, were not clergy, but they were laity, but they both had a phenomenal ministry of preaching and letting the power of the Holy Spirit uh, flow through them. Um, Stephen did great wonders and miraculous signs. And then we go to Philip who had gone to Samaria. Simon, this Simon the sorcerer himself believed and was baptized and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. Now, loved ones, great power does not equate to great miracles. They, they can be the same thing. They can illustrate each other. But great power has to do with great influence. Great power has to do with great effect. Great power has to do with great results. Great miracles are a different category that reflect great power uh, in, the, in the natural realm. But it takes, as I've said before, it takes a steady hand to hold a full cup. And if you want to walk with great power, you have to live in great boldness. If you want to see great miracles, you have to let that flow out of grace. Now let's shift just a little bit. Number four, the other thing designated as great was great eagerness. Great eagerness. Um, the, the Lord condemned the church in Laodicea. He's the only one that he didn't give some compliment to. He's the one that said, if you don't repent, I'm going to have to spew you out of my mouth. And their problem was they showed no eagerness. He, he said, you're, you're neither hot nor you're cold. He, and, and there's nothing wrong with hot. There's nothing wrong with cold. But each of them serve a purpose. And he said, you have not established your purpose. You're a mixture of everything and you don't do anything with zeal or with excellence. And it is summed up by the word eagerness. The Bible talks about Paul um, and Silas leaving Thessalonica and going to Berea. Now there was a church established in Thessalonica and boy, did they run into persecution. They ran into hard times. We know that from Paul's epistles to the Thessalonians, but the Thessalonians by and large in those early days did not accept the gospel. And it says, as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. They were eager to learn. They were eager to hear. They were eager to obey what the, the scripture says. So a, a great church is also marked by a great eagerness. Their services are not geared around entertainment. Their services are geared around the Word of God and, and worship that prepares hearts for the Word of God. Um, oh, better, I better stay on track. There's a reason for notes, but uh, I just don't remember what it is always. But uh, 
great eagerness. Number five, great power, boldness, miracles, eagerness, and there was great grace. It says with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the uh, resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Now, I, I, I'm going to just stop about 90 seconds here to be sure we understand what we mean by uh, grace. I grew up being told that grace was God's unmerited favor, and it, it is that. That's, that's a part of grace. But grace has two strong arms that work together. One, grace is God's good will toward me. His good will toward me. His good attitude toward me. Christ commended his love towards Stephen Chitty, and that while Stephen was yet a sinner, Christ died for him. Christ loved him. God is favorably disposed and says, whosoever will may come. And every one of us who are saved are saved not because of our worth or our value or our merit. Every one of us who are saved are saved because of his grace, his good will toward us. But grace is also not only his good will, it's his good work within me. You see, not only am I saved because of his attitude and disposition toward me, I have works that have nothing to do with my salvation, I know, but I have works that he enables me to do. Whenever someone is rewarded in heaven for their works, the unspoken dynamic is that they did what they did they didn't do what they didn't do or whatever, I mean, whatever they are receiving a reward for, it was because God enabled them to do that. If you can sing, let me tell you, it's more than genetics. If you can preach, it's more than just knowing a lot of words. If you can serve or teach or lead or whatever your gifting is, Everything you and I do is because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Great grace was upon them all. And here's one that we're not sure what to do with. This is one of those that don't usually get put up on the refrigerator. But great fear. Great fear. There's a good fear and there's an unhealthy fear. An unhealthy fear is cringing. It's no confidence, no assurance. Uh, and and uh, uh, an unhealthy fear is afraid of someone's touch. It's afraid of someone's touch. Um, I, I, I know that I had a dog years ago. We loved that dog deeply, and it became a part of our family uh, for years and years and years. But when that dog came into our family, it... it when you went to pet her, it was like she would cringe. And I know, the, I know the owner that we got the dog from, and I know they would never mistreat a dog. But then I, I saw something one day, and I think I figured it out. There, were, there was a group of kids that would just come by the house, and every time they'd come by the house, they would taunt the dog. They'd throw things at him. And I, I didn't know that at the time. And we figured out that this dog was afraid that whenever a hand came to him, to her, that whenever a hand came to her, that she was about to get pummeled. And it took years, years for that to disappear. 
and I don't know if it ever fully disappeared. That's not a good fear. That's not a healthy fear. That's why the Bible says God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Healthy fear is respect. The Bible says we can come boldly to the throne of grace. That does not mean, even though many of us have been taught this, that does not mean you go in and tell God what you expect or tell God what you want him to do. That it never has even the connotation of that meeting. That when it says we come boldly before the throne of grace, it means simply this. We come with confidence knowing that we're not going to get slapped down. We come with confidence knowing that he is able to touch us and leave nothing but a grease spot. But he opens his heart to us. That's holy boldness. Not God, you said it, and if you don't do it, you're a liar. Ooh, I wouldn't go there. I wouldn't go there uh, because I tell you what I found out. I've tell you, I found out going to the throne of God boldly that sometimes he'll say no but he's not going to slap me when he says no. We've got to learn the fear of God. And let me say this about fear. Fear will be evidenced in the church and outside of the church. The, one of the biggest problems in our society today, and forgive me for just giving so much social commentary, is there's no fear of anything anymore. There's no fear of God. There's no fear of the law. There's no fear of consequences. There, there's, there's no fear of being, I mean, it's just nothing is feared anymore. And people are unrestrained. The, we read where Ananias and Sapphira were struck down because of lying to the Holy Spirit. And this is what it says in Acts 5. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. He'd been confronted by Peter. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young man came forward, wrapped up his body, carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down um, at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Fear was in the church, fear was in the community. Now loved ones, holy fear is not manipulation. Holy fear is not manipulation. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I was in service one time years ago. You wouldn't know the church or anything, it doesn't matter, nobody you would know. But this man was really frustrated with his congregation. He said, if some of you don't stop the way you're behaving, I'm telling you, we're going to see the book of Acts uh, reenacted. And some of you are going to de be dead. Some of you are going to be struck down. Thus saith the Lord. And the thing that bothered me is that he would do that. Uh, I mean, I was only a Bible college student, but I, I knew that didn't bear witness with any sense of the Holy Spirit. 
But the other thing is that I saw the people, you could see them. And I think I was seeing with spiritual eyes, but you could see the, the church just kind of withered in fear. And he controlled it from there on with an iron fist. I want to tell you something. That's not what was happening here. That's not the fear of the Lord. I, I tell you, fear of God is a strong respect, knowing that he has the power and the authority to do this, but he also can extend to me the, out, uh, the outstretched hand. I remember a wedding I did in Alabama. This is, this is how healthy fear works. I, I, you know, I always tell people marriages are very serious. Um, you don't just, you know, get divorced because of inconvenience or you get tired of one another. There are reasons for divorce and sometimes divorce is the only option you've got. I understand that. But I said, you know, I tell them you need to be very serious about this. I said, there's not many things that you swear to God in front of a bunch of people that you're going to stick with. And I came to the point and I always tried to put a preacher's voice into it. I've done hundreds of weddings since then. Maybe eh, not thousands, but I might've hit a thousand by now. But this was one of the first ones I did. And this is an old country boy that was, I just thought was definitely over marrying. She was as sweet as she could be. He was a good guy, uh, but I just thought I got to help him. I said, I said, do you promise that you are going to be devoted only to your wife and that you will forsake everybody else. I wanted him to understand how serious this was. And this was his answer. Well, your dad burned tootin'. What do you think? I'm crazy. <laughs> he said, I got a chance to have her. Why wouldn't I give up everybody else? She's the best woman in the world. And I said, Yes, would have been fine, but that's, that, that's good. And you know what? I, he got it. And boy, they've had a beautiful life together. They really have. When I asked her, I said, are you willing? Uh, I, said, I said, no pressure, but are you willing to forsake everybody else and be faithful only to him? And this was her response. Eh, I guess so. Now she was teasing. She was picking at him and the church just lost it. They cracked up. But loved ones, I, I, he, that, that guy, and I didn't tell you what he, he, he said later. He said, if I ever cheated on her, she'd kill me. <laughs> but I want to tell you, every word that came out of his mouth was beautiful. Every word that came out of his mouth was expressing the right thing. I'd be crazy to do that. She'd leave me if I did that. She might even kill me. But yes, I take her. He had a holy fear and a holy love. That's the kind of fear that the church ought to have. We, we would criticize people a lot less if we had a fear of God. I talked to a guy one time. I I said, you need to have the, the superintendent of your district come and just talk to, church, to the church and talk to them about respecting the pastor. I, I, I said, man, when Samuel came and showed up at the town of Jesse unannounced, the people came out and said, hey, oh, is everything well? We're this in the, you're not scheduled to be here. Is everything okay? There was a healthy fear of the prophet. And I said, these people need to have a healthy respect for you. And this is what he said. He said, these people don't fear God. Why am I thinking they're going to fear me? And boy, he was right. And the church fell apart. 
but we need to understand what it's like to, to have a healthy reverence for God. We wouldn't say some of the things we say. We wouldn't post some of the things we post. We wouldn't write some of the things we write. We wouldn't talk to some of the people we talk to. Man, if we had a fear of God, it would translate loving God and fearing God translates into loving our neighbor and fearing our neighbor in the right kind of way. But great fear sees the whole church and everybody that heard about it. Number seven, come on guys, hurry up here. I got lunch plans. Um, the, the number seven was great persecution. Great persecution. Saul was there. This is with the stoning of Stephen, uh, giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Loved ones, we, I've said this before and I know people don't like it when I say it. I, mean, I shouldn't say you don't like it. There, there, there are many who are uncomfortable with it because it's not a mainline message, but I'm telling you, we need to understand persecution and we need to prepare for persecution. And by that, I'm not talking about moving to Montana and buying a cabin in the mountains. I'm talking about preparing our spirit. What are you going to do when it really costs to serve Jesus Christ? Are you prepared? Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, you rejoiced gladly at the confiscation of your goods because of the name of Jesus. One of the things that we're in class for right now as Christians in the United States is we're still angry with people who disagree with us. We're angry with the gay and lesbian community. We're angry with this, that, or the other, you know, or with racists. We're, we're angry. And it's okay to be angry about a thing but the church has got to move past anger toward a person. And we have got to have unconditional love. Now that does not mean we need to have unconditional acceptance or affirmation. There are some things the church must not accept. And there are some lifestyles the church must declare the word of God about. But we have to learn all of that to be done in love. To be sure that even if someone knows we disagree with their theology, we love them. We love them. You say, well, I just don't think we ought to welcome those kind of people to our church. Well, we may be the only church they'll go to. We may be the only opportunity they have to hear the gospel. And I want you to know anybody's welcome in our church. They're not welcome to membership. They're not welcome to serve. They're not welcome to take places of responsibility responsibility. But I mean, anybody, anybody is welcome to our church as long as they understand this is what we believe. And this is the gospel we proclaim. But we have to understand the day is coming when they already call it hate speech. You look and see what's going on in Canada. You look and see what some people want to take place in some states in America. And it's a frightening thing. And we need to understand that one of the things about the early church that was great is that they weathered
persecution well. They rejoiced. They left a beating, counted, saying that they were thankful that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying I want it. I'm not saying we ought to say, oh boy, persecution's coming. But it's a reality. If we want all of these other greats, we've got to make room for this one too. I encourage you to subscribe to publications and information services like Voice of the Martyrs. We need to see what's going on around the world and realize that um, we need to to suffer with those who suffer. We need to, to grieve with those who are grieving. I think we need to also learn to not waste our sorrow. Paul Bilheimer wrote a book, and basically what he was saying is this. Whenever we suffer, we don't learn what we need to learn from suffering. We, and when we don't learn what we need to learn, we don't let the grace of God help us in our suffering. Now, the, 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 Paul was, prag, was a pragmatist. He said, if you are a slave and can get out of your slavery, do it. But if you can't get out of your slavery, understand that even though you're a slave on the outside, you're the Lord's freed man on the inside. And those of you that are not slaves, he said, understand that even though you're not a slave on the outside, you've got to understand that you are a slave to everybody around you if you're going to do the will of God. So if you, can, if you can avoid something, avoid it, but not at the expense of your faith. He says, don't waste your sorrows. Let your sorrow be something that builds something in you. That's why the Moffat translation, I, I do this about three times a year, quote this verse. Dear brothers, when trouble and trials and adversity comes into your life. Do not resent them as intruders. This is from the book of James, but welcome them as friends. Welcome them as friends, knowing that they are building something in you that can't get put there any other way. Oh, I don't like that. Now it's good if we can say, whoo, that's good. But I usually say, <laughs> and I'm trying to move to, whoo. Hey, I'm teasing. I'm with you. We've got to learn to rejoice in suffering so that we don't waste our sorrows. And after Paul went to great lengths to argue life and death spiritual issues with the Galatians over going back to the rules and regulations of the law, which had already served its purpose. He said, you're not saved by the law. You're not saved by circumcision. You're not saved by dietary laws. He said they were in place. They served a purpose, but now we have the purpose served and we are saved by grace and grace alone. And Paul wrote all, he said, anybody that teaches you otherwise, even if they're an angel from heaven, even if they've got a badge that says angel core 101, he says, let them be a curse. Let them be condemned to hell because they are not telling you the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love the way he ends it. It just, it sounds carnal, but it just puts a seal on it. He said, don't any of you bother me about this anymore because I bear in my body the marks of following Jesus Christ. 
Now that could be taken as a, you can say that in the wrong attitude and it's horrible. But what, and, and you may not have a physical mark, but you have learned the value of being marked for God. You, you have learned, you know, we talk about revelation and we talk so much about the mark of the beast. And I think we need to talk about the mark of the beast, but I want to tell you, there's another book in the uh, mark in the book of revelation that we need to focus on. And it's the mark of God. We need to understand that God wants to mark us the way the enemy wants to mark us. And we need to understand that if we're on the path to greatness, persecution may be on the path as well. Okay, great joy is number eight. Philip went to a town in Samaria, proclaimed, proclaimed Christ. When the crowds heard Philip, saw the miracles that he did, people were set free from evil spirits. So there was great joy in that city. I pray almost every day for God to make this a house of healing. I want this to be a house where we're healed physically, but I want it to be a house where we're healed emotionally. I want it to be a house where we're healed psychologically. I want it to be a house where not only are demons cast out, but demons are crowded out by the fullness of the Holy Spirit coming into our lives. Not everything has to be a dramatic deliverance. Sometimes the enemy is cast out, and I believe in that with all of my heart. Sometimes the enemy has taken authority over. I believe in that with all of my heart. But sometimes we just get so full of the things of God that it's crowded out. It's crowded out. I remember one of my grandchildren I said, well, we've got we to clean this bowl out. This is for the dogs. We've got to clean this bowl out so their water will be clean. And he said, Papa, wait, I know how to do it. And I was going to take up the bowl and wash it out. And that's probably the best thing to do. But I, he got the water hose and he just put the water in and all the dirt started bubbling over the side. He said, this is an easy way. And I thought, well, I need to explain to him about germs. and But at the time I thought, no, let's celebrate this victory. Let's celebrate this victory. This is an easy way. Now, I want to tell you some of the greatest acts of the Holy Spirit are not us having a dramatic encounter. We need those. But sometimes the greatest deliverances are just the overflowing presence of God. That's why the altar is so important. That's why we need to pursue. And that's why it's so important because God wants to work where there's great joy in our lives. Okay, number nine, this is the last one, great numbers. Now we would have generally put this one first, great numbers. Um, there's at least three passages in Acts where it talks about great numbers. There's Acts 11, 19 to 21. There's Acts 14, 1. Acts 11, 25 to 26. All of these talk about um, experiences that resulted in great numbers. And loved ones, we need to have great numbers, but we must not make the mistake of thinking that a church is up or down because of numbers. We, we must not think that a church is in revival because of numbers or that a church is in decline if numbers drop. No, there are so many reasons numbers can go up and so many reasons numbers can go down. Yeah. 
I, I, I had a friend that worked in central Florida and he said, he said, uh, we have had a 300% increase in attendance. And I liked him. I knew he was a man of God. I said, that is fabulous. I said, I am so proud for you. That's wonderful. And he said, well, that's good news, but there's also bad news. I said, what's the bad news? He said, the 300% increase, we got an agreement with the Department of Juvenile Corrections and they have to come. They have to come. And I said, that's okay. Paul said to the Philippians, whatever reason Jesus is being preached, he's being preached. I said, that's great. And he laughed. He said, you don't think bad that they have to come? I said, There's, I, I would love to have people that have to come. See, one of the reasons I preached so long is my pastor knew that I needed to learn how to preach. So I went to the Scambia County Jail on Sunday nights and preached. Those people weren't going anywhere. So I learned to preach as long as I wanted to, you know. When COVID came, one of the effects of COVID is that we, we, it's very hard to tell who's still a part of the church. You know, people say, well, the, the church hasn't contacted me. We don't know who to contact. We, we, the only way we can really tell who's still part of the church is we assume if somebody gives to the church, they're, they're watching online and, and, and we know some people watch online. I'm, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with watching online. Not at all. I'm just saying before COVID, you just counted heads. But now we don't know on a given Sunday, we know there's a thousand or a little less that are here, but we have uh, information about people coming online. Now we don't know how long they listen. We don't know if there's one person sitting in front of a screen or a family of eight. We just don't know. And, and I'm quite serious when I say this, we don't know if we're a church of 1500 or 3000. Uh, we, we just have no way of knowing. And you say, boy, that must be hard. It has been liberating. It has been liberated. I know for a fact we have dozens of, of members of the congregation that live in other states. I know that. We have some in other countries. Uh, we, we may have three or 4,000 people on a given Sunday, but we don't know. Not to mention those that tune in later during the week. You say, uh, why is that a problem? Well, we just don't know. We don't know who needs what. We don't know how to help. And we ask you that don't feel like we do a good job of connecting. Just understand, it's next to impossible for us to know all the connection points we need to make. Um, you say, well, I just feel like I'm not being connected with. Well, call the church and tell us that you want to visit. I mean, it, it's, it, it really is easier that way. But having said all that, it has been the most liberating dynamic of measurement of church health because no longer do I hear people saying, oh, well, we run 8,000, we run 4,000, we run 850. It, the, the numbers has taken on a new dynamic. When we were trying to get the parking lot built, we, we, it, it was a, everything's gone up and it was so expensive 
even though we felt the company we worked with was good to us, it was still very expensive, much more than we thought it was going to be. We didn't know how we were going to pay for it. And um, you guys came through. You paid for the parking lot. But I want to tell you, we struggled. We agonized with that. We said things like people that love Jesus will park in the mud. They'll, they'll park in the mud. They'll walk up here until we begin to realize uh, that people that are getting older, they can't walk in the mud. They need something firm. Uh, believe me, I am, I am, I believe in the last two or three years, the world has developed acne and it's, nothing's flat anymore, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. But, you know, we, we just, are we going to have to spend this much money? Are we going to have to do this? And we said, we, we need this many spaces. The, 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 the government requires X number of spaces. And we thought, how are we going to get all these spaces? And how are we going to pay for all these spaces? And somebody said something that really changed the atmosphere. I don't remember if it was an elder or a pastor. I can't remember who said it. But they said, I read an article that says, the average church, for every parking space they have, they're making space for three people. And all of a sudden, we begin to realize we're not trying to please regulations. Yeah, government regulations. We are creating a space where three more people can get into the church that might not be able to get into the church otherwise. And you know what that did? You say, I know when you realize that God brought the price way down. No, I think it went up. But <laughs> our attitude changed. We're now no longer just building spaces. We are building doorways for people to come into the kingdom of God. Now, you say, Pastor, you're down to three minutes. Okay. Let me tell you what this translates into. Seven things, and I'll, I'll promise you I'll try to run through it. But remember, I've already told you I stumble sometimes, but I'll try to run through it. A church that was great was connected to the Holy Spirit and His manifestations, anointing, and control. This is what we learned from great power, great boldness, great miracles. We, we need to understand this is not about preference. It's not about stuff. It's not about volume. But it's about a genuine reality of the Holy Spirit moving in lives. And I want to tell you, we have the Holy Spirit moving in lives every day of the week. We have to be open to that. Somebody said one time, if the Holy Spirit died, now we know that can't happen. But he said, if the Holy Spirit died in the average church, they would go on doing 90% of what they've always done and never notice any changes. I pray that we become crippled if we ever negate or ignore the moving of the Holy Spirit. It's better to have calamity come and seek God for why the calamity is there than to ever try to move uh, without the power of the Holy Spirit. Number two, a great church was connected to the scriptures as the center of our worldview and standard for living. In the church, it's not coming from the world, the world just laughs. But in the church, in an attempt to be less offensive, in an attempt to be liked more, the average church in America is changing the place of the Word of God in our lives. 
and, and saying things like the scriptures are outdated. It was good for an ancient church, but we're in a different time. We need to pick and choose what's applicable. And the Bible says that all scripture is inspired of God and all scripture is profitable. Number three, a great church was connected to God's enabling grace his goodwill toward us, and his good work within us. Number four, a great church was connected to a healthy and holy fear of God that spilled over into the community. I read about the day of Pentecost and those who were unbelievers that heard all that was going on. They had two questions and it ought to be the same in our church every week. I mean, it doesn't have to be asked out loud but there ought to be such a presence of God that there's people in church that say, what does this mean? What is this? There needs to be something in church that's not explainable by Pastor Glenn's talent. There ought to be something in church that's not explainable about nice air conditioning or a pastor's outline. There ought to be something going on, even if it's just a feeling, even if it's just a sense there ought to be something going on that if people of the world come in, they say, what does this mean? King James, what meaneth this? And then after they ask what meaneth this and it was all explained, they had another question. What should we do? What should we do? There ought to be something about a great church that causes people to understand God is in this house. That's the only explanation for it. Therefore, what should I do? What should I do? Um, um, number five, here we are. A great church was connected to the idea of the fellowship of his sufferings, receiving difficulties with joy. Number six, was a great church was connected to an outreach and service to the lost that resulted in joy through the community. And number seven, a great church was connected to a spiritual understanding of what numbers really represent.